0: Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. When our faith shall be sight, clouds be rolled back as a scroll. that day is coming. And in fact, this morning as we open to Revelation 11, we're going to read about that day. We're going to see through the vision that John is receiving from the Lord Jesus Christ what that day will be like when the church, though it looks like we are down and out, when the church will rise victorious and triumphant. Revelation chapter 11 is where we're going to be this morning. I'm going to begin reading in verse 7. So if you would, just follow along in your copy of God's Word, and we'll read the text, and then I'll pray for us, and then we'll we'll get started. Revelation 11, verse 7, in the midst of the vision that we've been studying, it says, and when they, that is the, the witnesses of God, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt where their Lord was crucified. And for three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But... After the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, "'Come up here.' And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell." 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed, behold, the third woe is soon to come. Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you for your word and this is your word that you have revealed to us through your servant John and preserved for us so that we can study it, read it, and, and, and understand what you've, what you're teaching us what you want your people to know and be comforted by and encouraged by. And this is a hard passage. As we studied last week, we saw difficult things that are intended to prepare us for hardships in this world. But in this passage, we see the triumphant promise come to fruition. Your promise that all who put their hope and trust in you, all of us who come to you with the empty hands of faith, not trusting in our works, not trusting in our religious pedigree, but trusting in you alone, that there is a hope that goes beyond death that you have provided. So Lord, as we study your word this morning and we seek to understand what it says and what it means, Lord, would you help us? Give us your spirit and accomplish your purpose through the preaching of your word, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. How many of you remember where you were on Sunday night, February the 5th, 2017? No hands went up, so I'll just tell you where you were, most of you anyway. You were sitting at home watching a football game because on that particular night, the Atlanta Falcons were playing the New England Patriots and the Falcons were two quarters away from winning their very first Super Bowl title. How many of y'all remember that game? A couple of guys. All right, I have a couple of hands. They took a 21-3 lead over the New England Patriots into halftime. And then after they came out of uh, the halftime show and all that, they, they scored another touchdown to go up 28-3 to over what is arguably the best football team that we've seen in the last 20 years. And I know we're in Dallas. Yes, the Cowboys are going to win this year. It looked like the the Pats were just completely out. It looked like the Falcons were going to finally win that trophy, and then the wheels fell off. Tom Brady woke up. The the New England Patriots' defense decided they would start playing, and with less than two quarters to play, the Patriots orchestrated the greatest comeback in Super Bowl history. The 25-point comeback win gave the New England Patriots their fifth Super Bowl title, And to be honest, no one was really surprised that the Patriots won that game. But we were a little bit surprised at how it turned out, right? Didn't expect that kind of comeback. Now, great teams coming back from a deficit. Okay, well, that's a great team. That's what great teams are supposed to do. But here's another one. In June of 2016, the Golden State Warriors were up 3-1 to one in a best-of-seven series over the Cleveland Cavaliers in the NBA Finals. Some of y'all remember that one. Since 2015, the Warriors have won four NBA championships, which puts them in dynasty status. But in the 2016 Finals, they were one game away from winning another one, and the whole thing got away from them. They had a 3-1 lead. All they needed was to win one game, and over the next three games, they couldn't pull it off. LeBron James and the Cleveland Cavaliers battled back to win the final three games of the series, and the Cavaliers had never won a championship. It was their first, and the the Warriors had won a few. They were kind of tested and tried in this. But this comeback, which didn't surprise everyone, This comeback was a little bit unique. The underdog pulled it off. Now, in both of these cases, it looked like the championship had already been decided. The apparent winner was ready to be crowned. The T-shirts were already being printed. But the underdog was not out of the fight. Now, the reason I start there is I know we're not all sports fans, but most of us love a good comeback story, right? We love it when this kind of thing happens, and, and though we, our reasons for loving the comeback story may vary slightly, I think one of the underlying reasons is that we all know what it's like to lose. We all know what it's like to be behind. We all know what it's like to have others over the top of us, to be kind of counted out, to be the unfavored one in the room. And we want to know what that success feels like. We know the swell of hope that comes when there's just a chance that, that we can be vindicated in this, that we can be justified in our commitments. We love the comeback story because in a way we want that to be our own story. Now as Christians, the whole idea of a comeback story takes on special significance. Our eternal hope as believers, is rooted in the historical reality that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was crucified to atone for the sins of His people. And three days later, He was raised from the dead. Our Lord was not down 3 to 1 or 28 to 3. He was in the grave for three days, and He came out the other side the resurrection is the greatest comeback story in all of human history. And if you're a believer in Christ, then it is your story. This is our story. And here in the Revelation, we see that resurrection is in our future. In this world, we will face trials, we will face persecution, we will face suffering and death, unless, as long as the Lord tarries. But That will not be the end of our story. God has powerful plans for his people. Joel Beakey writes, Revelation 11 is a great comfort to true believers. It shows that the witnessing church shares in Christ's death, resurrection, and exaltation to glory. Christians will eventually triumph over suffering, even though in the meantime we experience it to great degree. But the scriptures tell us that if we share in his suffering, we will also share in his glory. Our passage this morning reminds us that the church will triumph over death in the end. So let's look back at the text and and then we'll see what this vision shows us and how we can apply it to our own hearts and our own lives. Look back at verse 11 where we see the triumph of the church, right? The triumph of the church. In verse 11 it says, and after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. They stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Now, that that phrase, breath of life, is an interesting phrase. You've probably never thought about it all that much. Maybe you have. If you do a word study on that throughout Scripture, you're not going to see it that often. It just shows up a few times. It shows up about five or six times in Genesis. It shows up in Job, and then it shows up in the Revelation. And when we first see this phrase, it's, it's God describing to us His creation, We we learn that God has fashioned all of the creatures. He has given them shape and form, but it's not until he breathes the breath of life in them that they become living creatures. In Genesis 2, we read that when God formed the man from the dust of the ground, he then breathed into his nostrils, here's that phrase, the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Job confesses it this way, the Spirit of God has made me, And the breath of the Almighty gives me life. So the breath of life, or the breath that comes from God, it is the animating principle of our existence. And here in the Revelation, we learn that the breath of God is also the animating principle of our resurrection. When all seems lost, when it looks as though our life and our witness have come to an end, When you close your eyes on this world for the final time, the promise of God is that the end is just the beginning. God will cause his life-restoring breath to fill our lungs as we are raised to new life by his power. This is not just a story that Christ went through. This is something that he promises to his people as well, that we will experience this resurrection like he did. Now, this vision in Revelation 11 of the saints of God being resurrected, this is not the first vision of resurrection that we have in the Scriptures. Other individuals received visions from God, prophets specifically, and one in particular saw a vision of resurrection that just completely floored him. In Ezekiel chapter 37, you may know this story. Many of you probably will. In Ezekiel chapter 37, the prophet Ezekiel was given a vision from God. And in that vision, he was carried to a valley filled with dry bones. Do you remember this story? and he's brought to this place, and and Ezekiel and the nation of Israel at this time are much like the two witnesses, that they had their day, but the world was angry against them, and and before the prophet, he sees the dead army of Israel in the valley. It's, It's almost as if you could say Israel was virtually dead at this point. And God begins to speak to the prophet, and he, he tells Ezekiel to prophesy over the bones. And it just seemed like this was a, a fruitless endeavor. Prophesy over these dry bones. And, and as he began to prophesy, there's this, this phrase that you should remember. He began to hear a rattling of the bones. God was moving. God was working in this vision. He was showing him something. The the bones came together and they stood up like men again. And then God caused flesh and sinew to, to cover these bodies again. And there was still a problem though. The Bible says there was no breath in them. And so God commanded Ezekiel to prophesy to the breath this is another reference to the breath of God prophesy to the breath prophesy son of man and say to the breath thus says the Lord God come from the four winds O breath and breathe on these slain that they may live and so he prophesied as he was commanded and the breath came into them and they lived and stood on their feet an exceedingly great army now the reason I bring that up is not just because that phrase "breath" is there, but the language that I just read you is word for word, what Paul I mean, what, what John is using here in Revelation 11 to describe the resurrection of the church. It's not a mistake. He's using the exact same language. And the, and the picture that he wants us to take is, look at the original context of Ezekiel 37. The nation of Israel at that time had been completely overrun by Babylon, the, the great wicked nation of Babylon, and they were in exile. Their influence in the world was diminished to the point that many would have considered them to be dead, but God had other plans for his people. This vision of Revelation 11 is of the church being overwhelmed by the unbelieving nations and their wicked kings. The spirit of Antichrist is animating the nations of the world in their defiance of God and persecution of God's people. But once again, God has the final word as he restores his people to life and raises us up for all the world to see. That's the vision that John is showing us. This vision is pointing to the resurrection of believers on the last day. On that day, Jesus will come to vindicate his word, to rescue his people, and to vanquish his enemies. But before that judgment falls, the church will be called up to meet him in the air, and the world will look on in fear. And we know that because the text tells us Look look back at verse 11, and let's consider this great fear that's going to fall. At the end of verse 11, it says, Having witnessed the resurrection of the witnesses of God, great fear fell on those who saw them. This is not going to be a secret rapture. This is going to be visible for the world to see. And then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. Now as these events unfold, we're, we're told that the world is filled with great fear. Now what does that mean exactly? I don't believe that this is a worshipful fear. Not, it's not like the, you know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's not that kind of fear. It's not the kind of fear that leads to belief. It is a kind of fear that leads to trembling. It's the kind of trembling fear much like that experienced by the demons. You know, you know their story. They know God exists, and they have some understanding of His power, and they fear that power, and they tremble when they consider it, but they do not love Him, and they do not worship Him. The same can be said for the men and women of the world on this day. They will see the miraculous resurrection of God's people, and they will be confronted with his power to raise his people from the grave, but they're not loving God and worshiping God. This is terror and awe, not repentance and faith. Does that make sense? Now, when this vision becomes a reality, and like I've been teaching, I don't believe that this is just for two witnesses. I believe this is to be understood symbolically of the church. When this vision becomes a reality for the church, the whole church, the unbelieving world will see and tremble in fear as the veil of reality is ripped and Christ comes forward, like we sang about earlier. That day is coming. And the church is going to be raised from the dead as the voice of God, or more specifically, I believe the voice of Christ, calls us to himself. And the world will see and they will realize in those moments that all of their faith commitments are absolutely empty. And that's why they're afraid. Did you know that all of us have faith commitments? All of us have things we're trusting in. We, we all have some belief about what is true and what is right and what is good. We all have some commitment. And our faith commitments are leading us somewhere. And will your faith commitments on the day of the resurrection, will your faith commitments be proving, proven empty? Because you placed your commitment in yourself or in this world or in our nation? Or will your faith commitments be vindicated? Because you put your hope in Christ and His death, burial, and resurrection, and your final hope is in Him. Well, by the way, I'm going to go back to something I said earlier. It says that there's going to be a loud voice and and everyone's going to hear it. Well, that loud voice is actually the voice of Jesus. And we know this Because we read about it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you want to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, if you're in Revelation 11, just put a bookmark there and go to the left a little bit, and and you'll find 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Thessalonica and he's trying to comfort them because they've been receiving some interesting teaching that's just not true. Some false teaching about the future. And he's, he's addressing the fact that somebody is, is teaching them that the resurrection has already occurred and they missed out on it. And uh, Paul says, no, I'm going to write to those who are trying to confuse you and I want to clear some things up. So if you want to read about that, please go and do that. But there's a, there comes a point in verse 16 where he starts talking about what's actually going to unfold. And he says this. He says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. It's an interesting phrase. A cry of command. In the Revelation, we, we hear the command, come up here. I'm putting these two things together. The Lord will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. The loud voice is the voice of the Lord calling us out of the grave and to his side. And the celebration of the world that we read about in verse 10, where they were exchanging presents like it was a birthday party when all the saints of God were diminished to the point of being declared dead, all of that is going to come to a complete stop. As God opens up the heavens and he steps forward and the church is raised in triumph over death and all the wicked intentions of the beast will be brought to an end. Okay, think with me for a second. I don't know how that's hitting you. I don't know how that's comforting or encouraging you. Or maybe your, your brain is just going and you're thinking of all of these things. But I want you to maybe try to put yourself in, in the position of the first century church when they were reading this for the first time. Because that's who it was originally written to. It's written for us as well. But it was originally written to the first century church church. And I can imagine them reading this letter for the first time, huddled up in a small little house church, and they're reading this, and they're, and they're thinking about the fear that they might feel about the anger of their pagan neighbor, and the fact that Rome is set, is dead set on, on stamping out every vestige of Christianity all over the place, and they've seen their brothers and sisters killed. Simply for their faith. They've seen their brothers and sisters thrown to the lion simply for their faith. And they're wondering, is there any hope for us? And John reminds them, hey, all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus told us this will be a dangerous road, but that will not be our ultimate end. We will triumph through Christ. And they were comforted by that. Or what about Christians today all over the world? What about Christians facing torture and death at the hands of Boko Haram, which is happening right now? Were they comforted by the reality that our suffering is not the end of our experience? God's triumph will come for us. Or what about our brothers and sisters in Haiti today who may be killed in the streets by thugs just because they think that Christians are an easy target? And yes, brother, sister, it's happening. This vision is meant to comfort the church because it describes our final victory through Christ over Satan and sin and even death. Do we have any Tolkien fans in the room? You don't have to raise your hand if you don't want to. Some of you are. Mark's excited back there. J.R.R. Tolkien wrote more than just the Lord of the Rings series. He wrote a lot of essays. He wrote an essay on fairy stories. Some of y'all didn't even know that. Some of you did. It's an interesting little essay. And he basically is writing to say, why is it that fairy stories, or what we might call fantasy stories, why, why they're encouraging, why they're helpful, why we need them. He writes that the desire in every human heart is to see all of the wrongs in our life put to right. He writes about the universal longing for the sorrows and failures of life to be upended and reversed. And he calls this you catastrophe. Catastrophe is when, when everything falls apart. Well, you means good. And, and the idea is there's actually in these fairy stories, there's this good catastrophe when everything gets put back to right. He coined that phrase. Eucatastrophe is the point in the story when all of the wrongs are made right. It's the point when all heaven breaks loose. And the joy floods out all of the sorrows. He goes on to say that the reason that these stories are so important is that they put into words the true longing of each human heart. Because deep down, we all long to see true peace established. Deep down, we all long to see the day when all of the darkness in this world is completely overcome by the light. And brother and sister, for us as Christians, the resurrection is the great catastrophe. It is the point when we will finally be freed from sin's claim on us. And it is the point at which we will be ushered into God's presence. It is the point at which we understand that death is not the end. It's just the beginning. But the end will come. The end will come for those in the world. Look at verse 13 and 14. We read, And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now, the great earthquake here describes the judgment of God that will fall on this particular day, on this great day. And some of you might remember that we saw the same thing happen when we were studying the seals. Do y'all remember this? That when the sixth seal was opened, we saw an earthquake. That's not a coincidence, These are not two different earthquakes. They're the same earthquake. In Revelation 6 and verse 12... We, we saw this vision that brought us to the end of that particular vision and the end of that particular age. And what happens is the, the people of God have been persecuted and God comes to restore them. And then God brings judgment on the earth in the form of earthquakes and lightning and, and thunder and all of that. And that's a sign for us as we read this revelation. That's a symbol that this particular vision has come to an end. That's a picture of the judgment of God that is to fall. And then the next, next part, the actual end of the vision, is the saints of God in glory. Do y'all remember that? Some of you do. Some of you don't. You can go back and look at it if you'd like. But we see the same thing happening here in chapter 11. It's the same pattern. We see the people of God in the world accomplishing God's purpose. We see the world uh, persecuting the church, even to the point of death. And then we see this climactic event where the people of God are rescued, and then judgment falls in the form of an earthquake. By the way, we're going to see this again. The exact same pattern is going to come up in Revelation chapter 16 and verse 18. As we see the next series of visions bring us to that particular point in the the vision where we see all of that take place. And this again is not a mistake. The book of Revelation is made up of seven different visions And I believe that they are intended to be read as parallel to one another, not as a chronological narrative of how everything is going to unfold. Now, I've been talking about this. I've said this before. If you believe the other, that's okay. You're well within orthodoxy to do so. But what I believe we're reading in the Revelation is a series of visions that are all showing us the same period of time from different vantage points. Y'all may remember I mentioned this months ago. The different visions offer us the picture of the age of the church, the time between Christ's first coming and Christ's second coming. But we see them from different vantage points. Imagine filming a movie. You're filming a movie scene, and instead of filming it straight on, you have seven different cameras set up from seven different angles. And as the scene unfolds, each vantage point is capturing a different aspect of that particular scene. Well, that's kind of what we see here. The revelation is unfolding in a similar way. We see the same point of time from different viewpoints, from different angles. And because these visions are parallel, we're going to see John bring us to the end of history again and again. As the visions unfold, the church age is going to to start and then it's going to come to an end. The vision will close, a new vision will begin, and the same thing happens again from a little different standpoint. And each time we go from one vision to the next vision to the next vision, the the persecution of the church is going to ramp up, and that's intentional on John's part. So I I just say that to to point out, we've seen this before and we're going to see it again. And the earthquake, the the catastrophic um, bringing to an end of life as we know it on this earth, that is a symbol of God's judgment falling. So the earthquake that came in chapter 6, it came just before the seventh seal was broken, and the earthquake here comes just before the seventh trumpet is blown. The earthquake in chapter 16 happens just as the seventh bowl is poured out, and these aren't different earthquakes. They're all the same. Each time we see this, we know that the vision is coming to a close because the judgment of God is being unleashed at the end of days. And the fact that the death and destruction are only partial here, there's only a handful, there's only a tithe of individuals who suffer at that, is is letting us know that this is just the beginning of God's judgment. But it is enough to cause the world to look on in fear and to bow their knees as they come face to face with the wrath of God. This text tells us that they were terrified and they gave glory to the God of heaven. Now, again... They're ascribing glory to God in a specific way, but I don't believe that this is worshipful glory. I don't think this is repentance. And some will believe that. And if you believe that, you've you, you got to defend it. I don't think there's enough in the text, essentially, to say that these individuals have come to a point of repenting over their sin and placing their trust in Christ, and therefore their worship or giving glory to God or ascribing to Him that He is worth this. I don't think that's necess- there's not enough information there to make me say that these are believers. This is very similar to what we've already seen in this passage. These men and women are simply forced because of what they're seeing to acknowledge that God is sovereign. And they are terrified at it. There is a difference between terror and worship just as there is a difference between remorse and repentance. Judas felt remorse when he betrayed the Lord. And he went and he took his own life, but we have no indication that he repented of his sin. Peter, on the other hand, repented of his sin for denying Christ, and he was restored. There's a difference between remorse and repentance. And here's what we know to be true from the whole of Scripture. As long as the church is in the world proclaiming the gospel, there is an opportunity for repentance and faith. But when the judgment of God falls, the time for repentance has passed. And that's why the Bible tells us things like this. Now is the favorable time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. There's so much. There's so much for us to learn in this chapter. In fact, there's so much for us to learn in these 14 verses that we spent four weeks studying it, right? We slowed down so we could see it all. But let me just give you a a real quick summary of the things we've seen and make some connections. It started with the measuring of the temple. It started with the measuring of the temple and then the world's persecution of God's people. They were trampling on the temple. And then God sent his witnesses into the world. And they they witnessed for a, a defined period of time, for three and a half years. And it was said that they possessed power like the prophets of old, like Moses and Elijah. They had the power to do amazing things, and they did these things in the sight of of all the world, but still the world sought to put them to death, and the world succeeded. The world rejoiced over the silencing of God's witnesses, but that was not the end of their story. God raised them up in the sight of the world. The celebration stopped as God's witnesses were called up into heaven in a cloud, and then the judgment of God began to fall. The death of God's enemies and those who survived looked on in terror and that's the end of this vision but let me just ask you a question does that sound familiar who else do we know who came to earth for three and a half years as a witness from God who else do we know who once stood in the presence of God but came to earth to preach while possessing power unlike anything this world has ever seen Who do we know whose very presence elicited the murderous anger of the world? Who do we know who was killed and who rose from the grave three days later and then ascended into heaven in a cloud? Who do we know? Brothers and sisters, this vision is pointing to Jesus. And it's pointing to Jesus in a very specific way. This vision is of the church, and our life and ministry and future is patterned after Jesus' ministry and death and resurrection and ascension, and it shows that we will follow Christ in the same way. Or to say it just in a few words, our story is a comeback story. Our story is the story of catastrophe. The kingdoms of this world will try to crush believers, but John assures us that God will not let that happen. At times, it will seem as though the church is finished, but it will never be so. God has a plan for his people. The final judgment of God will impact all of creation. It will impact every unbeliever, and it will be unavoidable on that day. But that day has not yet come. And so I'll remind you, because I don't know everyone in this room. I don't know your eternal state. I don't assume that everyone here is a believer in Christ. The prophet Isaiah says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon his name. And here's the truth, that the uncomfortable truth that we don't always like to admit. None of us is innocent. None of us is innocent. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And this means that all of us deserve the judgment of God. And the scriptures tell us that the only hope that we have is to turn from our sin and repentance and to trust in the work of Christ, God's Son, for our salvation. That's our only hope. How can you avoid the judgment of God? What is the way out of the great day of God's wrath? The way out is not for you to put your hope in the upcoming elections. Just being honest with you. The way out is not for you to put your hope in a restored stock market. The way out is not for you to double down on your self-righteousness. The way out is for you to turn from your self-salvation mission and embrace Christ with the empty hands of faith. The way out is for you to abandon all of your attempts at personal fulfillment and self-salvation and to trust in Christ alone. And so if you're not a believer today, please understand, we're we're living in a season where God is being patient with you. And God is extending to you the hand of His grace and kindness through Jesus. And today is the day of salvation. You are living in a time where the grace of God has been extended and all that is to be done is to receive it by faith. But if you're a believer, then we can look at this and we can say that no matter what comes our way, our hope in Christ is well placed. And until that day comes where we close our eyes for the last time in this world, and until that day comes, we are called to be bold and faithful witnesses to accomplish the purpose for which Christ left us here, which is to declare the glory of Christ and the truth of the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's our mission. So let's be faithful in it. Let me pray for us. Father God, I do thank you for your word. I thank you for what it teaches us. I thank you for what it uh, reminds us of. I thank you for what it reveals to us. And I thank you for the way that it comforts us and gives us direction. I know that I am uh, an imperfect mouthpiece. But I want to be a faithful teacher of your word. And so, Lord, I pray that you would continue to use us, use me uh, to declare the truth of your gospel and that you, by your power and according to your purpose, that you would draw men and women to yourself through Christ. I pray that you would accomplish your purpose through this word. I pray that you would stir us up to love and good deeds. And I pray that you would be glorified by your people. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.